Amen. Thank you, Sue, so much. You guys, we are blessed to have Miss Sue Otten leading around here and putting vision in our ministry. And so we just honor you this morning. She's running. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. <laughs> we love you. Well, let's pray over the word this morning. I'm, I'm tricking you. We're, we're actually going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. We're going to take a couple weeks to do some context before we jump straight to Psalm 51. R.C. Sproul in a sermon series he did on Psalm 51 says that whenever he reads a book, he said he can only read a page or two before he's back at the back cover of the book trying to find out a little more about the author. Where do they go to school? Um, what's their family like? Um, and I find myself doing the same because context actually matters a lot when you're reading and trying to understand someone's thought. And so this morning, we'll start in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we're going to try to do some context for Psalm 51. Um, so anyway, if you want to turn there, 2 Samuel 11. And let's pray. Lord, we live in an age of great deception. Lord, we live in an age where it seems lies and liars have prospered. And Father, we pray this morning that as we gather around your word, you would penetrate our hearts with the pure truth of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we believe your word's infallible and inspired. So we honor it. We come to it this morning with holy fear and holy reverence. We ask that you would open our ears, Lord. Remove any scales from our eyes. Lord, Paul wrote that there are some whose eyes are veiled to the gospel by the God of this age. We just declare this morning, we pray this morning, that, that the demonic would have no right in this room to bring deception. We love your word, God. Church, if you agree with that, just pray that with me this morning. We love your word, God. We love your word, Jesus. We honor you. It's in your name that we pray. Everybody say amen. 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 Well, we are starting a new sermon series on Psalm 51. We'll take six weeks. The first two weeks, we're going to talk about context. And the next four, we'll work through the psalm. You guys know how we do, kind of systematically, line by line, and try to glean all that we can glean from the psalm. I felt and have felt pressed to study Psalm 51 because I, I don't think that it takes much spiritual insight to recognize that from a national perspective, it seems that our future is hanging between the balance. Um, and I don't just mean politically. I'm, I'm actually not talking about politics at all. I'm talking about the moral and spiritual state of our nation is at risk. And whether or not the church will lead, whether or not God's remnant will rise up with repentance and prayer and zeal for the gospel, um, I think will dictate the direction of our future. And again, I'm a millennial, y'all, so I've, I carry a lot of the millennial perspectives. I'm, I'm not just arguing for um, the American heritage to prosper. I, I value American heritage. I do. But I don't completely... I, anyway... America and Christianity to me are not perfectly partnered together. If America falls, the church will not fall. That, that's what I mean by, um, by that. But what I, what I am saying is that if we care about our grandchildren having the right and the liberty to pursue their faith, 
If we care about our great-grandchildren hearing the gospel proclaimed in truth, um, what we do in this hour really matters. I'm so off notes, so forgive me. I dreamed this week. We, we believe that God still speaks through dreams. I believe in the prophetic. I believe in words of knowledge and revelatory gifts. Um, ultimately, I believe that the scripture, the word of God, is authoritative above all of that. And so any prophetic word that someone brings must be tested by the word of God. And so I don't say that I believe God speaks to me in dreams because I undervalue the word of God. I say that God speaks through dreams because I value the word of God because God speaks in dreams in the Bible. Okay, so again, I feel like we've got to say that, but I believe God speaks to dreams not because I believe that the Bible is not enough, but because I believe the Bible teaches that God will speak to us through our dreams. The Bible does not teach that the Holy Spirit will become silent after the scriptures are finalized, but, but rather Jesus says that my sheep, they will know my voice. And so I dreamed it this week that I was having a conversation with an elderly relative um, who really has a passion for the Lord. And we were sitting talking, and it was a really simple, profound dream. And she said, you know, Caleb, in my day, we read aloud. She said, we, we read aloud. We sit at the table and read the scriptures aloud. And she said, no one reads aloud anymore. And she said, what we need to do is get back to reading aloud. And then I woke up. What does that mean, God? Read aloud. I began to ponder in Deuteronomy chapter 6, for instance, the, what's known as the Shema, the great... Um, moment where God has established his covenant with Israel and he says to the, 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 the leaders in Israel, he says to the parents in Israel, what I want you to do is I want you to, to put this word on your lips to impress it upon your children to put it on your doorpost to make sure your children understand our covenant and I think read aloud I think the, the, the prophet John saying, blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy speaking of revelation when i think read aloud i think all those times when israel did turn and they came back to god and and most of the time when israel was in a moment of repentance there would be an elder or a scribe who would stand up before israel and would read aloud the covenant of god again and as we step into psalm 51 and again we talk about repentance I felt like the Holy Spirit is speaking to us that now is the time to read aloud again, to return to our covenant relationship to God, to gather our families and our communities and to communicate again. Choose today who you'll serve. When a father gathers his family around the dinner table and reads the scripture, he is making a declaration in the spirit realm. We have chosen who we serve. But I'm worried that the beginning of our degeneration as a nation began in the home. I'm worried that we've become so casual in our Christianity and we've, we've fallen. I'm just talking, y'all, so forgive me. I'm allowed to do that because God has given me this microphone and that gives me the right to talk. I'm worried that our faith has become so casual and we come to church on Sundays and we might hear a sermon, but there's no point where we bring our faith into the home we begin to discuss what we're watching. We begin to teach our children our faith. We begin to really talk about how do we honor God in a practical day-to-day way. American Christianity is show up to church on Sunday and on Monday night, watch whatever vulgar garbage that cable TV seems to be putting in front of us. Now, people my age, we don't watch cable TV. We stream, okay, just so you know. 
But you know what I'm saying? You just watch whatever's in front of you and you go about your week flippantly and you go to church again on Sunday and then you go on living day to day. And I feel like God's calling us in this hour, read aloud again. Gather your family and your community and remember my covenant. Remember your first love. Remember what it means to really honor me and serve me. And so that's where I want to go throughout the next six weeks. I want to kind of journey down that path. And as we, again, we're, we're in an election cycle. You know that. So every election cycle, there's, there's a lot of conversation. And so I'm not, again, I, I, think, I think voting matters. I want to encourage you. I say this all the time. I, don't want, I, I have no idea why religious liberty is not more in our conversation. I'm most concerned within a, the future generations that I, as a, a preacher, will lose my right to speak freely without legal rep, rep, repercussions. Now, I pray that I, as a preacher, would just receive those legal repercussions. But why we're not talking about that, I have no clue. Um, but I'm, I'm not primarily talking about this election cycle year and the future of our nation. I'm primarily talking about the future spiritual heritage of your grandchildren, of my grandchildren. I'm talking about whether or not we pass along the faith of the saints that's faithful to the scriptures or whether or not we become so lackadaisical that we lose any true Christian heritage in our midst. And so we quote to each other, oh, the Second Chronicles 7.14 formula, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my faith, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and heal their land. And as we approach Psalm 51, it's very much about what it means to turn. And so we need to be praying for our nation in this season, yes. We need to vote in this season, yes. We need to speak out in this season, yes, but by God, you better make sure you turn. And it's very easy to think of national America as this big, out there picture, but I want you to know that you cannot talk about revival, returning to, you can't talk about any of that if it doesn't start with you in your home. All our nation is is the collective of families. And if it doesn't start in your family, you have no right, no authority. Because what happens is it becomes a bunch of gibberish in the air. You continue to live in your sin and to live stale and to live flippant. And, and, our, and our values become our talking points, but they're not our walking points. And so it's, it's got to start in this room, okay? I have no responsibility for what happens in the church across the street. I have no responsibility for what happens in the church across our nation. I have every responsibility. I have all authority. We, do you hear what I'm saying? We have serious, we will stand before God accountability for what happens here. And if our nation goes to pot, Let's make sure that we did something here in our midst to ensure that there's some kind of legacy to pass on here. God is always looking for a remnant. Will you be that remnant or not? I feel like that's the word of God in this hour. Will you be my remnant or will you not? And so, David, Psalm 51 is what's known as David's great prayer of repentance. David is often spoken of as a type of Israel and so or a metaphor for Israel. And so for instance when 
the, the captives are taken to Babylon. We, we'll talk about Jeremiah. We're going to talk a lot, a lot about the Babylonian captivity. When Judah was conquered uh, by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and brought. When they, when they talked about their captivity, they talked about David being run out of Jerusalem. Because, because they, they saw David as a type of Israel. And so as David honored God, we talk about David as a man after God's own heart. David was, think with me for a moment. David was a prophet, certainly. David was um, a worshiper, like an excellent musician who worshiped God. He's this warrior, like, like not, not just a, a warrior skilled with his hands. He is skilled with his hands, no doubt. But he has this, this faith to honor God. Remember what he says to Goliath as a young man. You come to me with a sword and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of the host. Like, like David is this epitome of what it is to be a man who really fears, loves, and serves God. And as David excels in his integrity and in his character, Israel has her golden hour. Right? The, the, the really golden era of Israel was the era in which David honored God. And then David fell into sin. And, and when David fell into sin with Bathsheba, which is what we'll read to this, read this morning, David begins to experience all of the curses that God told Israel they would experience if they did not honor his covenant. So David loses a child. David is exiled, if you will, run out of Jerusalem. And so Israel has always looked at David's life as a type or a shadow of what would happen if they honored God, they would have a Davidic-like era. And if they dishonored God, they could expect that their lives would turn like David's life turned. And so what we get is an incredibly profoundly godly man who falls into sin and begins to experience the the negative implications of the covenant because the covenant was two-sided, you remember. If you honor me, you'll be blessed. And if you dishonor me, I will bring judgment. And so, I'm not trying to perfectly line Israel and America up and say, we are totally like Israel, and if, and if we continue to dishonor... I'm not trying to do that perfectly, but I am saying that those principles lie. Um, when a nation honors God, the nation will prosper and I'm not a historian, but I'm, I'm also not stupid. Um, I'm, I'm well read enough to know that the founding of our nation was established upon biblical principles. When we talk about freedom of religion, the, the reason our founders were so adamant about having religious liberty is because in other nations, they were not allowed to express their Christian faith in a biblical manner without being persecuted. And so when we began to talk about establishing a nation, they started to say, we need religious liberty because I need to serve God without you putting your hands in it, government. And so when you begin to think that way, you realize that what many of our founders, the, I would say the majority, of course there were some who were unbelievers, majority were after was, was an environment where they could honor and pursue God without the intervention of the government. So when you talk about the separation of church and state, you're never, it was never talking about pastors not being allowed to speak to political issues. It was always talking about the state having no right to tell the church how they should or should not worship. Only God can tell us how we should or should 
should not worship. And we should worship based upon biblical principles. That was the, the heart of the founding of our nation. And we were losing it. And, and maybe we have an hour to turn. Maybe we have a moment to return to God and repent. Maybe we have a moment to rise up and really be the remnant that God's looking for. If not, the biblical pattern would be that America... Not, I'm talking so much today. Y'all forgive me. I don't know. My wife hasn't let me talk in six days. She talked, talked, talked. And so I got a microphone and here you are. I'm sorry. Um, it's not just a biblical pattern. Historians, I was, gosh, this is in my notes, so I don't have this, the reference for you. But I will find you the reference if you want it. You email me, I'll find you this reference. Um, historians will trace the rise and fall of empires. And, and, and a very prominent historian in recent years, he said that, that the decay of American morals, when you look at it historically, every nation that's gotten to where we have gotten morally and ethically, it's only a matter of time before they've fallen apart. He said 19 out of 20 times, empires who began to go down the road that we're going ethically, seeing the, the exploitation of sex and the decay of family, those nations always, 19 out of 20 times, they fall quickly. It's not just a biblical pattern, it's a historical pattern that we're walking away from our values and we will experience judgment and a collapse lest we turn. So we're going to talk about David's great failure and we're going to talk about David's turning in Psalm 51 and I pray that the Holy Spirit would do something in our hearts. Okay, I'm, I'm not just trying to talk to your brain this morning. It's my deepest cry that God would shake the scales off of our eyes and that the fire of God would penetrate our hard hearts. So Psalm 50, 51 is what Charles Spurgeon called the, simmer, the sinner's guide. It's the, the moment of repentance. Let's read from 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to do a cultural no-no. In our culture, it's very inappropriate to read too much of the Bible when you're teaching the Bible. <laughs> That's a joke, but true. <laughs> We're going to read all of 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's 27 verses. I want to encourage you to lean in. I say this to you all the time. God gave you cognitive faculties so that you can lean in and study. We've, we're in a culture that wants to be entertained. It's not my job to be an entertainer, okay? What we're doing this morning is not entertainment. We're reading aloud the Word of God to one another. And so I want to encourage you to lean in. I'm going to read all of the chapter. We're going to do our best to study it, to understand what, what God is saying um, through this pinnacle crucial moment in David's life. This is the moment where David, David's life changes, where his great legacy of prosperity and blessing and righteousness is totally turned. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, he remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. And then she returned to her house 
And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab, uh, asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David sent to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but Uriah did not go down to his house. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why, did you, why then did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say... Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So then the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your enemies from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David says to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, had died, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. First, I want to talk to you for a moment about the hour of temptation. Say that with me, the hour of temptation. David remained at Jerusalem as his soldiers are sent out. Now, it's often taught that the reason David fell into the sin is because he should have been out fighting the battle with his soldiers. Scholars go back and forth. It's not necessary to jump to that conclusion. David is aging. Um, what, what Joab is leading the, the, the soldiers of Israel to do right now is to besiege a city. And so besieging a city could take months, years. And so it's very likely that, remember that, that David is aging, but he's also a man who's raised up great soldiers around him. So it's likely that the mighty men have said to David, look, let us besiege the city. You, you stay in Judah and Jerusalem and continue to govern. Um, that, that, that would not, not be sin necessarily. 
It's, 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 it's likely that what David was doing was very practical. David was going to continue governing while Joab led the mighty men to continue besieging a city, which again could take months and years. Um, so the quick interpretation is to say David fell into sin because David wasn't out fighting. Now, that still may be true. It may be true that David should have been out fighting. The text just doesn't demand it. What we do when we run to that conclusion, and there are truths here, is we say, the way you avoid the hour of temptation is to stay on mission. Men, you're supposed to be fighting for your families, serving your communities. Serve your communities well, do more ministry, and you will avoid the hour of temptation. Keep your hands busy, and you will avoid that moment. There's a lot of truth to that. Men, if you're struggling with addictions, if you're struggling with pornography, if you're struggling with alcoholism, the last place you want to spend all of your time is in a bar. Okay? You, you can have more frequent hours of temptation based upon your surrounding circumstances. It's very healthy to live life in Christian community. And, and if David would have been on the field, it's likely that he would have been surrounded by men like Uriah, who was committed to his covenant with God and to being a man of honor. And it's likely that David would not have fallen to this hour of temptation if he would have surrounded himself with Christian community. But, but, the hour of temptation will come sooner or later. And you can't live a life that says, I'm going to control my outward circumstances so that I never have to face temptation. At some point, you will face the hour of temptation. And what you need to do is to not always get stuck in controlling your outward circumstances. At some point, you've got to start dealing with your heart. Because Jesus had an hour of temptation. And he looked it in the face, hungry, brought scripture and communion and intimacy with the Father into his hour of temptation and came out on the other side, clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, it feels like I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth, but I'm, and I'm trying to help you. On one hand, it's true, Christian community matters. Be on mission. Serve people. One of the greatest ways to combat temptation is to serve people. On the other hand, the mindset that says that the, 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 the idle hand is the, or the idle mind is the devil's playground, um, that's, that's true to some extent. But the fact that David is on the couch, that, that's not his problem. Jesus sanctified the couch. I don't know if you know that or not. But Jesus took naps on the couch. It is holy. I will be on the couch in about three hours. The problem is not the couch. The problem is David's heart. And if you live a life that says, I'm going to stay as busy as I can so that I never fall into sin, what you'll do is you'll work yourself into burnout, then you'll fall into sin quicker than anybody. There were discipleship schools who tried this over the last years, and some discipleship programs still do it. They get a group of young people, or sometimes they do this in addiction programs. They get a group of addicts together, and to help them conquer temptation, they just keep them busy as they can keep them. So discipleship programs used to do this thing where the, the kids would just work in the church nonstop. If you're not sleeping, you're working. 
keep you busy and you won't fall into sin. And what happens is when you, that, that works for a while and then you're burnt out. And then you try to face your hour of temptation while being burnt out and you fall into sin faster than pancakes fall into my belly, boy. No analogy was coming to my brain in that moment. <laughs> Just grab something. <laughs> Woo! And so the answer, listen, listen to me. I, people say to me all the time, I'd rather burn out than rust out. I agree. I would rather burn out than rust out. But that's a false dichotomy. There's another option. Stay well oiled. It's a whole other option. Stay well oiled. And so, so the life of longevity of, our pastor taught us this, um, that your life should be a, a rhythm of worship, work, rest, and play. Worship, work, rest, and play. The problem is not that David's resting in this moment. The problem is maybe that David's not resting in the presence of God. He's resting wrong. You can rest wrong. You need to learn to rest in ways that promote your spiritual health. So you, the couch is not evil. What you do on the couch might be evil. <laughs> what are you watching? What are you listening to? Sometimes it's perfectly healthy to lay on the couch and watch a good old documentary on World War II. I'm, I'm, I'm resting in a way that promotes my spiritual health. Rest is good. It is perfectly spiritually healthy to take your chair to the beach and plop your butt down and breathe. You need to have rhythms of that in your life. If not, you will burn out. And in burnout, I think of Evan Roberts, Roberts, for instance, who was one of the great revivalists of the late 18th century. Great revivalist. The end of his life was utter deception and sin because he burned out. Okay? To avoid burnout, you learn to rest in ways that are spiritually healthy. To stay well-oiled, you learn to live a life that worships passionately, that works with integrity, that rests in ways that are spiritually healthy, and plays and celebrates your family. Think of William Wilberforce, for instance, who is the man who basically took down the transatlantic slave trade, although it fell after he died, which was a shame that he didn't get to see that day. He spent his whole life fighting the transatlantic slave trade because of his gospel convictions. John Newton was a friend and a pastor. William Wilberforce would, um, every Sunday, this was unheard of in his culture, every Sunday he would spend the entire afternoon going to the park with his kids, just playing with his kids, laughing, giggling with his kids. Because that's a part of having a healthy lifestyle. Okay? And so I said all that to say is that we read this chapter and we say, oh, David's problem is that he's idle. That The problem may be that he's idle. But the bigger problem is his heart. He hasn't stewarded his heart well. And I would rather burn out than rust out, yes. But my goal is not burning out or rusting out. It's staying well-oiled for the long haul. And God using me as I tend my heart with integrity. So the hour of temptation comes, and, and David is not stewarded his heart well. And, and listen to me for a moment. David's life has been a life of integrity. David's life has been a life of holiness. A man after God's own heart, blessed. And in this one moment, David's entire legacy of holiness is almost overshadowed by falling to one hour of temptation. And one hour 
he loses his entire spiritual legacy. And that's what sin wants to do to you, friends. You may be a man in this room who raised your kids with integrity. You served your wife faithfully. But all sin needs is you to fall to one hour of temptation. And all the years where you labored faithfully to serve your wife, your kids will remember you as an adulterer. Now God's grace can be in the mix and redemptive. But do you hear what I'm saying? Sin always wants to destroy your legacy. The way that you combat the hour of temptation is to be sure that your heart recognizes what's going on. There may be fleeting pleasure in the sin. In David's case, the adultery. Fleeting pleasure in a moment with Bathsheba. But a lifetime of consequences. I want you to put this little quote to memory. It'll serve you well. I've got to remember it myself. I'm scratching my ear as I try to remember Sin will always take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will always take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you are willing to pay. It will promise you on the forefront all the pleasure in the world, and on the backside it will chew you up and spit you out. It will devour your life. Men, listen to me. Sexual sin will devour your life. It's the same for a preacher, man. I can preach the word faithfully. I can serve the church faithfully. But if I allow the enemy to get me in one single hour of temptation, my entire legacy and ministry could be thrown away. Realize that you have an enemy. He's after your soul. He will tell you all day long oh it's when we talk about pornography addiction for instance it's just a moment everybody does it no one's gonna know friend sin will out you the enemy reserves the right to out you when it serves his plans best it will come to light sooner or later i i beg you repent i beg you this morning men in this house stand in righteousness I plead with you, do not allow hell to lead you down the path of destruction. It will chew you up and spit you out. You guys know I'm an old country music fan. I have Hank Williams Sr. rolling through my head. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you are willing to pay. Sin and temptation is a liar. It's deceptive. And the best thing you can do is to remind your heart of that. Then the cover-up. So David is walking on the roof of his house. He gets off the couch. He's taking a nap. He's walking on the roof of his house. You guys know that in the day, the house would have been the coolest area, the wind's blowing, and so you know, in hot Middle East, you want to be on the roof, okay? So David's walking on the roof in the cool of the day, and he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. Now, there's no reason in this passage, the passage says nothing about Bathsheba's motives, says nothing about whether or not she felt like she had to interact with David because he was king, whether or not she encouraged it, because the passage isn't about Bathsheba, it's about David. And men, in your hour of temptation, or women, you have a coworker who comes to you and advances, bring, comes on to you, and that person's actions have nothing to do with the way you respond in that moment. It's nothing to do with your coworker. 
You are responsible for you in the hour of temptation. This passage has nothing to say about Bathsheba. Everything to say about David. Nothing to say about Bathsheba. And so he sees Bathsheba on the roof, and he decides that he wants her. And so he sends a messenger to come and ask about Bathsheba. And so what he learns about Bathsheba is this, is that she is the the daughter of a great warrior. She's very likely, scholars believe, she is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who was a great counselor of David. And she's the husband of Uriah, who is one of David's mighty men. Now, scholars believe, many scholars believe, the reason David can see Bathsheba from his house, the reason Bathsheba's house is so close to David's house, is because Bathsheba was a woman of great standing in the community. She's the granddaughter of a counselor to the king. She's the daughter of a great warrior. And she's married to one of the mighty men. David still wants her. Because sin has no boundaries. And so the scripture tells us that after this encounter, Bathsheba conceives. She's now pregnant with David's child. And again, what's done in the secret will always be brought to light. And the right thing to do would be to repent and to come clean. But adultery, in, in, in Israel's day, adultery is a, is a capital offense. So David had just committed an act that would demand his death. So rather than being a person of integrity and coming clean and facing consequences, whatever they are, David does what you and I do. He decides he's going to cover up. Because sin le- temptation leads us into the sin, and then the temptation cur- continues us into deceit by leading us to cover up, to lie. So he continues in his rebellion, and he tries to cover his tracks. He sins... A messenger to bring Uriah home from the battlefield. Remember, Uriah's participating in this attempt to siege a city, and so Uriah's on the forefront, and he sends to have Uriah come home. Now, this is awkward, because why does David need one of the mighty men, Uriah, someone he's obviously not that close with, he doesn't know Bathsheba, his wife, why does David need Uriah to come home to give him information? It's kind of an awkward encounter. So, David begins to ask Uriah about Joab, and about what's going on, and um, then he tries to send Uriah home, to have an encounter with Bathsheba because if Uriah will get Bathsheba pregnant then we can all just pretend that the kid is, is Uriah's and we can just go on. God forbid if that child ever is born and grows up and ever finds out that think about the mess that could create. So Uriah refuses to go home. It's likely, it's very likely that David has asked his warriors to remain sexually pure. That was part of ritual ceremonial cleanliness. Being ceremonial clean was to be sexually pure. It's likely that all of the soldiers were asked to remain sexually pure throughout battle. Because remember, they're a nation that's in covenant with God. And so Uriah comes home. He talks with David in a respectful tone. And then David says, go home. And Uriah sleeps outside because he's going to remain sexually pure and participate in the the ethos of his fellow soldiers who are fighting for his country. In particular, he wants to honor Joab, who's the leader. And so David, recognizing that Uriah the first night refuses to go home, David decides that what he'll do is get Uriah drunk. And it's just an absolute shame that drunken Uriah has more integrity than sober David. And Uriah does the same. He drinks to honor the king, sits at the king's table. Again, remember, those mighty men, they were men of integrity, of honor. He honors his king... And then he refuses to go home. So you know the story. So now David's desperate and guilty. And so he sends Uriah back with a letter that's his own 
death sentence. Essentially, what David's done is he's told um, he's told Joab to allow Uriah to to pursue, to move forward, and then to cause everyone else to come back so that Uriah will die, essentially. And what, what happens, um, you, they get too close to the gate. And you remember, you get in this whole conversation about um, people shooting down from the gate. And so they get close to the wall, and then Uriah is killed as the soldiers from the wall shoot down, likely what happened. So Uriah is dead, and David has successfully begun the plot to cover up his sin. Next, what he does is deplorable. He disguises his sin as righteousness. In the culture of the day, when a man passes away, his wife is left vulnerable. And so, in, in, in the culture of the Israelites, if your brother died, it was your responsibility to marry your brother's wife and to give her a son so that your name, that son, would be considered your son and your name would be carried on. So David, Uriah is a Hittite. He's serving David, but Uriah is not an Israelite. And so it's likely that Uriah didn't have family around or someone to redeem Bathsheba, to marry Bathsheba, to provide for her, and to give her a son on behalf of her deceased husband. So what David does in front of all of the nation is he redeems Uriah, the fallen soldier's wife. And he pretends that this baby that Bathsheba now carries was his great act of honor to give Uriah a son to honor this fallen soldier. And by consequence, he's now painted his evil as righteousness. And the nation applauds David, our great man after God's own heart, the righteous man. In his great compassion, he marries Uriah's wife and gives him a son. And our scripture closes with, but the thing that David had done displeased God. The thing that David had done displeased God. David covers his sin and disguises it as righteousness, but God sees. And this is, I'm afraid, where we are culturally. We begin to disguise our evil as righteousness. We all pat each other on the back. So the murder of children in the womb is now woman's health care that we celebrate as a great act of. Now, if you've had an abortion, don't hear any condemning talk coming out of me. There's grace. So don't, don't hear me condemning. I'm just saying that it's still evil. Woman's health care? What we called, we said we needed was sex education in our schools. In the 70s and 80s, we were going to do sex education, late 60s. What we did was begin to instill in our society a normalization of sexual acts outside of the covenant of marriage. And after that act, we we watched perversion explode. We turned the 2000s, you know, when the century changed. The pastor's apologist we're saying that the, what we call the LGBTQ plus movement was beginning to gain some traction at that time. And the pastors and scholars kept saying, if, you, if we allow this logic to continue, if we allow this, this faulty line of reasoning that says that, that for, for instance, 
I, get, I can identify my own gender as if biology doesn't matter. I get to pick what I want to be. They said in the early 2000s, I could show you this on paper. Let this go on for long enough. It's only a matter of time before we start seeing polygamy in our society again. And now all over TV we have throuples as a thing. It's kind of a cute thing, throuples. And, and then that these pastors said, and if you just give it enough time, give it enough time, and what you'll have is pedophiles using that same logic to justify why they should have the right to engage in those kind of sexual acts. I can show you that in the early 2000s. Pastors saying, this is where you're going. This is where you're going. And as conservative evangelicals, we all nod our heads and we go, yes, oh, evil, evil. And outwardly, evangelical Christianity has remained pure. Outwardly, we've stood our ground and said, no, the Bible is true. But listen to me. I, I wept as I wrote the sermon this week. I wept in, in my little office. Outwardly, we have remained holy. But inwardly, pornography is as rampant in the evangelical community as it is in the world. And so you get in your real fit about sex trafficking, and you should. But by God, men, you're participating in it. Do you realize in your participation of the pornography culture, you have furthered along the normalization of rampant sexuality, and, the, and oftentimes the women you're watching on the internet have been sex trafficked? So we wear our little things and we scream, stop the sex trafficking. Stop the pornography in Christian households. Let's start there. And we've screamed about abortion. And we should scream some more by God. It's got to end. But we've done virtually nothing to lower the cost of adoption, to assist families in our community to do something about children in foster care. The evangelical community has got really good at outwardly proclaiming righteousness and inwardly being as lazy, lackadaisical, and wicked as anybody else. We're wicked. And if God's remnant is wicked, of course the nation begins to go down the drain. And it's not enough. Hear me, it's not enough. It is not enough to be pro-life in, in, in the way that we vote, which we should be, and to not be pro-life in the way that we live. So we need to do everything we can to ensure that a woman who does decide to keep their child has support and care. We need to put our money where our mouths are. It's been said before, I have not looked this up, it could be totally untrue. I'm just reiterating what I've heard in this moment. I've heard it said that if every church, if, if every church in America would adopt one child from foster care, that the child care would begin to dump out. One. Had someone here say that? Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. Look it up for yourself. Certainly we can make a dent. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? Our nation is is turning towards evil and we're screaming our values here are all of our values but inwardly we live like everybody else 